This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Ritual and Shelter. Looking for a magical place to shop and hold space? Check out Ritual and Shelter in Homewood, Alabama. Browse through their bookshelves covering topics of magical history, theory, and practice, as well as tarot cards and oracle decks from well-known artists and even decks created by local witches in Alabama. From teas, tonics, and tinctures to toad skulls and tourmaline towers, you can find all of these and so much more on their witchy website, ritualshelter.com, or in person. So lather up that flying ointment and travel down to Ritual and Shelter in Homewood, Alabama, or check them out online at ritualshelter.com. Did you run out of flying ointment? Well, they have that too. This season of The Witch Wave is brought to you in part by Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a fragrance house specializing in body and household blends with a dark, romantic, gothic tone. Over the years, they've collaborated with some of my very favorite creative visionaries, including Neil Gaiman, Jim Jarmusch, The Jim Henson Company, and most recently, Junji Ito. They continually return to inspirations drawn from witchcraft, paganism, and mythology, and they also have a sister store called Twilight Alchemy Lab, which creates oils blended and consecrated specifically for ritual use. The lab recently released their annual Halloween perfume collection, a limited edition series which includes scents inspired by folklore accounts of lycanthropy. Customer reviews of their products can be found at the fanrunbpal.org web forum, and you can check out all of their perfumes and other enchanting concoctions over at blackphoenixalchemylab.com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello, lovers, and welcome to The Witch Wave. Oh, yes, it's almost Valentine's Day, and you know I go hard for this holiday because it's also my birthday. Maybe I've mentioned that once or twice before. Who's to say? But for those of you who have an aversion to this holiday, I welcome you to take a page out of my book and use it as a self-love day and do something extra tender and sweet just for you. That said, I love contemplating the different ways that the archetype of the lovers can help us tap into the notion of divine relationship. 
Now, this can be a sexual or romantic relationship, sure. But let me just say that some of the most romantic relationships that I have in my life are with my friends. The way we love on each other and send each other gifts and notes and I'm thinking of you messages and go on beautiful adventures together. My friends are some of the great loves of my life. I'm also interested in the way in which our understanding of different kinds of non-platonic relationships have evolved. Now, I'm in a monogamous relationship with my husband, Matt. I know, I know, so tradish. But our relationship is far from boring and has gone through many different phases and iterations and is something I'm deeply grateful for and proud to celebrate because it's not always easy. But it's been so wonderful and worthwhile because we each have the room to grow and change and we celebrate each other's evolution. And we also laugh our asses off a lot, which if you want a love potion, my friends, that's the answer right there. I love roses and rubies and Aphrodite aphrodisiacs, of course, but without laughter, you can keep all that as far as I'm concerned. Anyhow, even though we've chosen to stay solely committed to this structure of our specific relationship, I've been really excited by the ways in which it's become far more acceptable to be in things like open relationships, polyamorous relationships, same-sex relationships, gender-fluid relationships, asexual relationships, spicy short-term dalliances, and slowly fermenting long-term connections between people who choose to never marry or who may see each other just every now and again. In other words, whether you're single or swingle or partnered or poly, there is magic to be found. And that's why I'm so attracted to witches and artists who depict acts of love and eroticism in open ways that expand our understanding about what divine partnership can look like. It can be partnership with another person or people, partnership with the self, partnership with capital S spirit. And I've been getting this message a lot over the last couple of weeks. And one instance of this is I recently received a copy of the deluxe reissue of Rachel Pollock's Shining Tribe Tarot. Now, this deck came out about 20 years ago, but the reissue is so breathtaking. And I had the honor of interviewing Rachel here on The Witch Wave not long before she passed away, and I'm struck yet again by how ahead of her time she was. As many of you know, her writing on tarot and her speculative fiction writing and her pioneering thinking about gender as a transgender woman herself was all so visionary. And so seeing the deck that she created, which reflects her vast scholarship, but also her sense of gender and sexuality as being limitless— Seeing this all get this deluxe treatment from Wiser Books with such celebration and care is so moving to me, and I was really honored to get to blurb the deck as well. But anyhow, this deck arrived in the mail recently, and I was flipping through it, and I found myself lingering over Rachel's version of the lover's card. 
In her drawing, we see two red, androgynous or non-binary beings in an embrace floating above the earth, and one of the beings has wings and one does not, and yellow sparks are flying all around them. And here is some of what Rachel writes about this card, which she calls the lover's red angel dreaming. She writes, quote, The traditional card called the lovers shows a young man choosing between two women. It was sometimes subtitled choice and symbolized the power of sexuality in becoming a mature person. Desire leads us to make our first real choices independent of our parents. How many of us have dated or at least yearned for people our parents disapproved of? The Rider Tarot changed the lovers to an adult man and woman naked before two trees with an angel blessing them. Many later decks have followed this lead with various images of mature passion and commitment. Shining Tribe Tarot merges the human and the angel, showing the sacred power of sexuality. She goes on to write, Both the human and the angel appear androgynous, not specifically male or female. This enables anyone to project themselves into the picture. That is, a lesbian may see both figures as female, a heterosexual man may see the human as a man and the angel as his ideal female partner, or the angel as his idealized self, and so on. Neither figure dominates the other. The angel's wings wrap around the human while the human's legs enclose the angel. The idea of sacred sex suggests actual practices such as the Indian Tantra with its sexual yoga. It also refers to awareness that sexuality pervades all existence. And later she writes, We need to bring the human and the divine together inside us and allow them to embrace each other. They must desire each other. Unquote. Now, I share all of this because the timing of this deck showing up right after I interviewed today's guest felt uncanny. Because today's guest is Dr. Amy Hale, who is one of the world's foremost experts on the surrealist artist and sex magician Ethel Calhoun. Ethel is experiencing quite a resurrection, as Amy and I discuss. And you should check out all of Eithel's work if you aren't familiar with it. And Amy's books about her are all incredible as well. But in our conversation, we discuss Amy's newest book, which is called Sex Magic, Diagrams of Love, Eithel Calhoun. And this book focuses on Eithel's magical and erotic drawings, paintings, and poems, wherein she many decades before Rachel Pollock, mind you, created images of lovers and of the divine union that are gender nonconforming and which celebrate desire and union between humans and otherworldly beings. 
And Eiffel's depictions are way steamier than Rachel's. Not that it's a competition, but it just thrills me to the core knowing that Eiffel was making this visionary, erotic work during World War II. Talk about a groundbreaking, body-quaking, brilliant iconoclast. Amy and I discuss Eithel and her enchanted, erotic work in graphic detail. And when I say graphic, I mean it this time. This episode is probably not safe for work or for kiddos. So go ahead and curl up with yourself or with your lover and have a listen. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches. Hi, Pam. This is Lauren. I am calling in because I have a question relating to long-term love, cohabitation, togetherness with a partner for many, many, many years, and how we can possibly use magic in different ways to maintain desire, maintain commitment to one another, maintain commitment to the relationship. And I know you and Matt have been together for quite some time. My husband and I have been together for almost 18 years now, married for 15. And through kids, multiple moves, many different life situations, you know, we are still committed to one another. But I would like to integrate some different ritual or magic or spellcraft in some way to you know, strengthen those bonds, facilitate communication, you know, really accentuate and add to the work that we've been doing together anyways. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Thank you. Hi, Lauren. So lovely to hear from you. And yes, you're absolutely right. Matt and I have been together for, well, it will be actually 20 years this October and married for 14 of those years also this October. So I know all about that long-term love and its ups and downs. And I could talk about this topic for days on end because I've learned a lot over the years and no doubt have only scratched the surface. So let me start by saying that one thing I find helpful is to think about our relationship as its own kind of magical entity. The relationship is this third being that has its own sort of consciousness and rhythm and energy, which needs consistent tending and care. And that doesn't mean we get subsumed by it. We are still very much individuals and we care deeply for one another's individuality. But we're also both committed to keeping the flame of our relationship lit. And I'm not just talking about sex, though that's important to us anyway, but also just the romance that we have for each other. And that means being playful with each other, flirting with each other, complimenting, touching, saying thank you to each other. You get the idea. But we're also committed to taking care of ourselves and You know, I'll just say that the hardest times that we've experienced in our relationship are when we're just not on the same page, when one of us is stressed or one of us is depressed or one of us is tired or, gods forbid, both of us are in any combination of all of the above. And in those moments, the thing that has gotten us through is, of course, patience with each other and kindness for each other but also taking time to take care of ourselves. And that means 
maybe me going out with friends or having a meeting with my coven or just making sure I have a night to myself when he's out of the house where I can do a ritual or some divination for myself. So it sounds paradoxical, but by each taking some time apart, it gives oxygen to the flame and the fire of our relationship stays lit. So that's part one, just making sure you're each nourishing yourselves and feeding your spirits separate from one another. Now, in terms of things you can do together magically, I'm not clear on if your husband is a magic practitioner or not. If he is, or at least is open to it, why not try some sex magic or affection magic anyway, as I'm not sure how sexually active you currently are with each other. But experiment with the idea that your physical connection is a conduit for energy and that you can then direct that energy in your minds toward the manifestation of some kind of outcome. And so the next time you're fooling around, you know beforehand that at the height of passion, whatever that means for you both, you know that you're each going to hold the same vision in your mind and you're going to release it at that height of passion. And maybe that vision is going to be for a more connected, joyful marriage. Maybe it's just going to be for a vacation. I don't know. That's really up to you. Now, if sex magic seems a little too advanced, shall we say, you can create a love altar, or you can do that as well. That's always a beautiful way to go. The altar can have symbols of your marriage on it. It can have love deities on it like Aphrodite or Freya or Hathor or whomever else resonates with your specific lived experience and spiritual path. And you can light a candle on this altar periodically. Fridays are generally said to be the day of love in magical practice. Friday is the day that is said to be sacred to Venus. So maybe every Friday you light the candle of your love together and you take a minute to name a couple things you love about each other or set an intention to center your love for each other over the coming week. Something like that. It can be simple and quick. And I know it can be hard to find time for these things, but what's that expression? Attention is the most basic form of love. So making sure you give your relationship attention, not just each other attention, but the relationship, this third entity attention in a symbolic way can be so beautiful and so effective. And then finally, it is Valentine's Day soon. And remember, Cupid is the child of Venus. So maybe you want to do a little ritual on that day, not just by giving each other chocolate or flowers or cards, but actually taking the time to do a love spell with and for each other to recommit the love magic that brought you together in the first place. Again, this can be as simple or as elaborate as you like, but as you do it, don't be afraid to ask Cupid and Venus for their blessings on your relationship to help you feel more connected and more consciously engaged with each other. Happy Valentine's Day, and let me know how it goes. Now, on to my guest. Dr. Amy Hale is a writer, curator, critic, ethnographer, and folklorist who focuses on esoteric history, magic, art, culture, women, and Cornwall. 
She has written widely on the surrealist and occultist Ethel Calhoun, and in 2009, she received a grant from the Paul Mellon Foundation for her research. Her biography of Calhoun, Ethel Calhoun, Genius of the Fern-Loved Gully, is widely praised and is just one of many, many, many ways that Amy has helped amplify Ethel's impact on art and magic. Amy's newest book, Sex Magic, Diagrams of Love, Ethel Calhoun, is out this week from Tate Publishing. And A Walking Flame, Selected Magical Essays of Ethel Calhoun, is coming out from Strange Attractor later this year. Amy is also the editor of numerous other collections, including the groundbreaking Essays on Women in Western Esotericism, Beyond Seeresses, and Sea Priestesses. And she has contributed essays for Tate, Burlington Contemporary, the Australian Center for Contemporary Art, and many more. And if all that wasn't enough, Amy is currently a curator and host for the internationally beloved London-based Victor Wynne's Last Tuesday Society Lecture Series. She's also been featured on BBC Radio Cornwall and the BBC World Service and is a regular guest on a variety of podcasts, lecture series, and conferences, including the Occult Humanities Conference at NYU, which I co-organize with Jesse Bransford. All of that only scratches the surface if you could believe it, but I'm going to stop there so we can get into our sensuous, succulent discussion about the bewitchingly brilliant Ethel Calhoun. Amy joined me from her home in Atlanta, Georgia, via Zoom. Amy Hale, welcome to the Witch Wave at long last. Woo! So good to be here with you, Pam. I'm so excited. I'm so excited too. You are a friend of mine, but I've also been such a longtime admirer of your work. And so it's wonderful to get to talk to you in this capacity. So Amy, you do so many things, but we're going to focus on one of your primary long-term projects, which is I really see you as being the steward of a really what I'll call undersung female surrealist magical artist. And that is the painter and writer and many other things, Ethel Calhoun. And let's just clarify that is indeed how you think we should pronounce her name, correct? It is how we pronounce her name. And there is no shortage of confusion around that, which is why I decided to make how you pronounce her name the first line in my biography of her. Perfect. Well, thank you for clarifying. I was like 99% confident, but then I was like, ah, now we're recording. Of course, I'm going to fuck it up. So I'm glad I got it right. Thank you. So let's just talk about Ethel. We're here in celebration of your newest book about her, but you've been writing about her for such a long time, doing so much research about her. So can you just give us a little bit of grounding? Who was Ethel Calhoun? Well, I like to say that Ethel Calhoun was probably the most interesting and engaged woman occultist of the 20th century. Now, obviously, there are others who might fight for that title. 
But Colquhoun was a really innovative thinker. She was an artist. She was a surrealist. She was a writer. She was an essayist. And she was a very creative and very committed practicing occultist. She was just by way of a brief biography. She was born in India to a colonial family in 1906. And she came to the UK when she was one. I think that was kind of jarring for her own sense of self and identity because she never really felt English. Hmm. And she kind of, I think, thrashed for an identity, but her family was Scottish and Irish. So she felt very strongly pulled to a sense of Celtic identity. In the 40s, she actually settled in Cornwall, which is how I got to know of her, but that's a little bit down the road, perhaps. She lived in Cornwall for over half of her life. Mm -hmm. She was trained as an artist from actually a pretty early age. She went to art school when she was a teenager. Then she went and studied at the Slade School, which is Britain's really preeminent art college. Sure. She became interested in surrealism in 1936 when she went to the London Surrealist Exhibition. Mm. But far before that, and from, again, when she was quite a young woman, she was really an occultist first. We start seeing her occult interests from a very early age. They go all the way through art school. So when she becomes a surrealist, it's my argument that she does this because it is a way to really express her occultism. Mm -hmm. rather than the other way around, finding the occult or finding it through the practice of surrealism. She was an occultist first and foremost. And so in kind of part of her surrealist journey, she starts working with automatic methods and automatic painting around 1939. Mm. And that really becomes the cornerstone of her work. So early on, we see her doing these very almost Dolly or Magritte-like, very representational pieces but then in the late 30s, she starts moving into abstractions that kind of come out of her automatic processes. And so I think that she actually starts developing automatism in her own practice at that point. Let me just jump in and clarify for anyone listening. So when we're talking about automatism, this is essentially a technique a lot of surrealists engaged in, but I would argue is kind of a form of trance. It's a form of creating without filter. It's just letting drawings or stream of consciousness, writing, or whatever kind of art practice you're engaging in come to you. And some people say, well, this is just your unconscious mind speaking. There are others that might argue this is the gods or deities working through you. Whatever, you know, your model of it is, this is what we're talking about. Right, Amy? Absolutely. And I'm glad that you clarified that. I think certainly for her, she thought of it as exactly this altered state of consciousness, this kind of mantic process. But for her, I think it was also because for her, when she was doing this, she was kind of priming the pump with either elemental colors or Kabbalistic colors. So I tend to see it as not only was she just kind of letting forces speak through her by going through into this altered state of consciousness, but that there was also a sense of invocation as well. Mm. She was working with specific ideas and I think that she was, instead of seeing it like most surrealists, as a way to let her subconscious come through, 
that she was actually seeing it as perhaps a way of bringing through other beings, entities, and working with other planes and dimensions. So it was for her a very complicated process. So when we're looking at her automatic pieces, we're actually seeing a whole bunch of interesting and rich occult layers that are encoded in her works. Yes, so very intentionally. Now, for someone who hasn't seen her work before, you kind of just traced it starts out more figurative. So beings that we might recognize people and landscapes and body parts and so on, but that it kind of evolves and becomes a little bit more amorphous, would you say? I would, yes. I think that a lot of her pieces from, say, the 40s and 60s, during the 50s, her artistic production kind of slows down as she works on her writing career, which Mm -hmm. is very important to her as well. But I think in a lot of her visual pieces, they're very richly colored. They're very richly textured. Sometimes they have shapes which might emerge. Lots of things kind of reminiscent of vulvas. Maybe not so much in the O'Keefe sense, but Mm -hmm. they're kind of there. But definitely not heavily figurative and not highly representational. Mm -hmm. Although we do see that in some of her magical experiments, which lead up to where she's maybe working on esoteric ideas that actually look more representational. And then when she works them into a final painting, they look less representational than perhaps the early sketches, which is kind of an interesting way of going about it, I think. Fascinating. Okay, so in this evolution of her style, at what point does she start engaging in the reason you and I are talking today, which is her more overtly sexual, erotic magical work. What's fascinating, there's so many things about the time period in which this work emerges. So the body of work that is in this particular book ranges from about 1939 to about 1943, Mm -hmm. because a lot of these pieces are undated, but a number of them are. So for me, it's been a lot of detective work trying to fill out exactly what the range of time is. Prior to this, as she's Moving into surrealism, so 35, 36, 37, Colquhoun is doing her work, which at that point is more representational, has a couple of interesting features as she's kind of working with her early surrealist period in 36 or so. Mm-hmm. She's working with certain mythological themes, some of which have sexual components. So we're talking issues of particularly castration, as she's probably referring to sacred king, Fisher King iconography, Mm, most likely in some of that body of work. She also, even prior to that, does a lot of plant studies. She really loved painting and drawing what she would have considered exotic plants and hothouse plants. I'm telling you, when that woman did a pitcher plant, It wasn't just a picture plant, if you know (laughs) what I mean. I think we do, Amy. I think we do. For her, a cucumber in a jar, that was a thing. (laughs) She had these very erotic, but also, I mean, they were clearly explicit before she starts moving into this material. So when you're looking at her body of work, there are absolutely visual and thematic precursors. But this material where she's taking it out of the metaphorical and into human bodies really starts around 1939 and ends around 1943. Now, in the middle of this, about 1939, is when she starts working with automatic processes. But I'm not really looking at 
automatic works in this collection. Fascinating. So just so we know kind of where her head is at, we're not getting to her loins just yet. Is she living in Cornwall at this point? So at this point, it's a pretty critical point, right? Because if you think about when this is going on contextually, this is World War II. And this is when things are starting to get really gnarly if you're in London. And so for part of this period, she was actually an evacuee down to Cornwall. So this is when, although I believe that she had visited Cornwall when she was younger, she starts making trips down to Cornwall during this period. And this is related. This is when she starts also doing some of her magical paintings and drawings of standing stones in Cornwall. This is where she starts exploring the energetics of sacred landscape in a really intensive way. And I believe, and we'll talk about this in a bit, that these two preoccupations for her are very linked, looking at the energetics of the human body, the energetics of the landscape, and how these things commune with each other, how human bodies and the energetics of human bodies can interact with the energetics that you get from sacred sites. Yes. So she's going back and forth between Cornwall and London during this really intensive period of World War II. And I think this is really what is her focus at that point. Okay, we're going to leave this on a cliffhanger. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Here's a witch tip for you. Did you know that you can send a message to your ancestors and helping spirits through candle magic? What do you wish to manifest? Simply carve a word or sigil onto the candle. My grandma Helen believed that as the candle burns down on this earthly plane, it begins to appear on the other side so that your message is received. Hi, I'm Veronica Varlow, burlesque performer, lineage witch, and author of Bohemian Magic. Want to learn more tips like this? Join my magic coven, The Parlor, with monthly workshops like Supernatural Seduction and Spirit Speaking. Join one or all of our 13 clubs like Book Club, Tarot Temple, and The Craft Club. Find me at lovewitch.com, L-O-V-E, witch.com, or at Veronica Varlow on Instagram. See you around the cauldron. The Witch Wave is sponsored by BetterHelp. So I'm really proud of a lot of the relationships in my life, And one of the central ones is, of course, my marriage to the lovely Matt. We've been together for nearly 20 years and it's brought me so much joy and growth and continues to do so. But I actually hate when people say relationships take a lot of work because that sounds like total drudgery. And while Matt and I have gone through some tough times, we've also had tons of fun over the years. But I will say it's not always easy, and it does take effort sometimes. And a common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. And that's just simply not true. 
there are inevitably going to be moments in any relationship, and that's romantic, platonic, work relationships, and creative collaborations, where there's friction, where in some moments it doesn't feel easy, and that doesn't mean that it's not a good relationship. The best relationships are the ones where everyone involved is committed to working through the tough stuff. And therapy can be a place to work through the challenges that we face in any of our relationships. I've been in therapy for the majority of my adult life. Matt's been in therapy at times. And it's been massively helpful, not only because it's a neutral space where you can process your emotions, but also because your partner is not supposed to be your therapist. Going to a therapist can not only help you process certain issues that might come up in your relationships, but it's also just a place for you to unburden yourself about anything that's on your mind so that you don't spew it all over your partner or friends or coworkers in unhealthy ways that can strain those relationships. After a session with my therapist, I often feel immense relief because I've gotten things off my chest, I've lightened my emotional load, and I've sometimes expressed frustrations with myself or with others, and then have been able to work through those feelings in therapy and get to the root of them so I don't just take out those frustrations on the people I care about most. And that empowers me to be the best version of myself so I can show up fully in my relationships with an open heart. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at anytime for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com slash witchwave today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash witchwave. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Amy Hale. So Amy, we're talking about Eithel and World War II. She is starting to explore the connection between landscapes and bodyscapes and thinking about both of these as kind of sacred sites or both of these as sort of landscapes. A body can be a landscape, I suppose where there can be like energetic centers and portals and standing stones and gullies and all of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the frustrating things in putting this piece together and in working with this material is that she never, if she has, it hasn't yet come to my knowledge, she never wrote the unifying theory of what Eithel Colquhoun was doing with these pieces. So for a lot of this, I was looking at a number of works, which I could see were happening at the same time, and were expressing similar themes. So I would see maybe on a drawing that she did of the Menantol, mm -hmm. which is a site that's sacred to many people in West Cornwall. It's very distinctive. It has a hole in the center and two small pillars right beside it, a hold stone. 
And she did a beautiful piece of this with a woman's body holding the two pillars at one end. And there are energy streams and flows going throughout the body of the woman. But maybe on that piece of paper where she's doing a sketch of the men and toll and she's sketching out these principles, she would have another sketch of maybe the fourth dimension, like a tesseract. Mm. Or there's one where she has this little sketch I mean, little tiny sketch, throwaway sketch of a woman standing next to a plant and they're both energetically connected to the earth and that energy is flowing up through her vagina into her body. Mm -hmm. So part of what I was doing was having to decode when these things are in physical proximity to each other or they're being explored at the same time using some of the same visual language. Was she maybe connecting these principles? Mm. She was a professed animist. And the energy that runs through the stones, that runs through the earth, is a sexual generative energy, and that it is that which fuels our body and that we can exchange with each other, as yes. well as with the stones and the earth. So I think she saw this as one big energetic system. Yeah. In the book, and I should just clarify, we're talking about your newest book. It's called Sex Magic, Diagrams of Love, Eiffel Calhoun. In the book, you really make sure to emphasize the point that she studied Kabbalah. She had an interest in Tantra. You bring up the kind of tantric notion of prana and the more Chinese kind of Eastern principle of qi. This idea of this being this vital, creative life force. So even though it's like fun to think of her erotic drawings as like horny, kinky things, and they're very explicit in some cases, beautiful, beautiful, and very explicit. They're also kind of like, I mean, you use the word diagrams in the subtitle. These are diagrams that are exploring this life force and how transformational and transcendent it can be for people who choose to engage with it in a sexual way, right? Exactly. And I think another of the fun and challenging things for me in putting this together was realizing that an image can and will be several different things at once. And sometimes there was probably what she was thinking when she was drawing something, and then maybe something else that was there that maybe she didn't even want to acknowledge. So for instance, there's this one really incredible picture, very simple. It's an erect penis. And it's clearly a man who's on his back. And really the focus is just on that cock. Mm-hmm. And in looking at it, I can see in there, I believe that it's very likely that she was looking at that and thinking of a standing stone. Mm -hmm. Because she did standing stones even much later in her corpus that were very clearly meant to be phalluses. Right. But there's also just this woman looking at an erect cock in front of her. Mm -hmm. There's something that was going on there. I mean, it's possible that that wasn't a life drawing, but it sure does look like a life drawing. So there's this desire, I feel, that is present in so much of these. 
But there's also how she filters that desire through these spiritual and intellectual filters. Mm. And I think some of it for her was maybe distancing that desire. And some of it was also leaning into it in a very deep way. There's kind of this tension I find in a lot of these works. Yeah, because the works are, and we should kind of talk about some of them a little bit more specifically. I mean, there's some diagrams that feel almost like scientific where she's trying to come up with a system of sexual energy, almost her own decoding, if you will, of these kind of energies. There's also images that seem like they're inspired by the Kama Sutra. I mean, there are people fucking. And sometimes it's a man and a woman. Sometimes it's a man and a woman androgynous being. And we're going to talk all about that. You write in the book that she had a woman as a partner in her younger days, and then later she had men as partners, so she was clearly queer or somewhere along that spectrum. I don't know if she would have identified that way later in life, but she certainly had those experiences, and you talk about that in the book with a lot of emphasis. So she is a very radical person and thinker in her artwork, let alone in her own actual erotic life. Absolutely. And the queer issue is, I think, critical to understanding how radical this body of material is. It's very clear from what she was trying to do. She was working with a very common esoteric and occult principle of the time. She was interested in the concept of the divine androgyne. And this is why we see the idea of the hermaphrodite coming up over and over in her work. But we see it in occultism. We see it in surrealism. This principle was exactly radical. It's really the way in which she was theorizing, perhaps going about it, which was so radical because normally in most occult works that center on this idea of polarity, using these kind of electrical metaphors, there's the assumption of an essentialized female, an essentialized male, and that in order to create a circuit through sex magic, that you have to have both of those. And let me add, Amy, that usually the female part of the circuit is kind of like passive and the male or masculine part of the circuit is active. And I mean, you make the point in the writing, often in these Western esoteric traditions that deal with sex magic, the woman was considered a passive vessel and her own desire and pleasure wasn't even that important. Like she was considered kind of a vehicle through which a man could reach transcendence or enlightenment. And she was very important because of that. But it wasn't about her pleasure. It wasn't about her desire. It wasn't about her being active in any way, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what we see in these pieces, we see a number of things which I think are completely radical. One is that while she definitely is employing this notion of polarity, she doesn't suggest that the bodies need to be essentially male or essentially female, mm -hmm. since she has same-sex pairings. Also, she has group situations there, which fantastic. <laughs> it's possible that these polarities can take place between two women or potentially two men, or as we see a man and an angel. So where these come from, the bodies might not be as important as the orientation. The other thing that's magnificent about these pieces is that woman's 
pleasure is centralized. And the piece that's on the cover of the book, I believe actually shows a woman's apotheosis as the transcendent end of this sex magic operation. And time and time again, the images that we see that are the focus are clearly marked as female. That's sometimes challenging terminology, but they have vaginas that we can say. So let's also talk about that word apotheosis for listeners who might not be familiar with it. My understanding is that's becoming a god or embodying a god. Is there another interpretation that you want to add to that? I generally think that what we're seeing is the moment of a woman having a transcendent experience into an undifferentiated godhead. Because I think that in this corpus, there are markers of androgyny, which you were referring to earlier. So we have these beings because sometimes we have somebody who's marked as what I will say is femme, right? Has these femme characteristics. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. then these other bodies, which sometimes they have penises, sometimes where the penis might be is obscured. Mm -hmm. And it's so consistent because when she wants to draw a penis, she'll draw a penis. (laughs) Yeah, she's not here to play. She's not here to play. (laughs) But sometimes the bodies that are interacting with the femme person, it's really unclear what's going on there. But when we see that moment of apotheosis on the cover of the book, it looks like it's that transition to that androgynous state, which is occurring through the sex act. Mm. I want to circle back to androgyny in a moment, but I also really want to emphasize for listeners a little bit of like the context of sex magic that we're even talking about. Some listeners might be familiar with the principle of Hieros Gamos, the sacred game, which was popularized by Wicca and, you know, Gerald Gardner and that cohort, which was essentially either symbolically enacting the sex act as a part of ritual where you could take a blade and plunge it into a chalice. And this was supposed to symbolize union in a holy way. And sometimes they would just literally be fucking. (laughs) They would just be in their magic circle having a good old time. But it was considered this really sacred communion and a way to generate energy and also to, like you said, maybe become a god temporarily to maybe transcend the self. But you're supposed to be having this not just erotic experience, but a deeply spiritual and magical transformative experience of elevation of some kind, right? Absolutely. And from the mid-19th century on, when we start really getting a nitty-gritty focus on sex magic, the kind of sacred marriage, hieroschemos, we see images of that even in alchemy. We get that principle in alchemy. We get some occulted principles of that in Western Kabbalah. And the idea that without the woman, the man cannot achieve enlightenment. So we see that in alchemical texts. We see that in Kabbalistic texts. And then this starts working its way into the Western esoteric canon. And we start really getting that more explicitly in the mid-19th century. Yeah, you write about Pascal Beverly Randolph, who's a name who's been coming up much more often on the podcast, which I'm thrilled about. This is a Black, very visionary magician and writer in America. Was he writing in the 19th century or early 20th century, Amy? I forget. 
He was writing in, I believe, the 1860s. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm pretty sure 1860s, but definitely 1800s. So really critical figure. Many people say that it is through him that Aleister Crowley, his ideas about sex magic actually start getting integrated into Western occultism through his work. I always like when Americans influence the Brits. I know, right? (laughs) It it doesn't happen enough, damn it. Or at least we don't get credit for it enough, but it makes me very happy. Yes, it's true. And a Black American at that. So yay, go team. Exactly. He was really, really important. And he was also widely read in France in the late 19th and early 20th century. And, you know, of course, obviously, French occultists were very influential on Western occultism as well and British occultism. So yeah, PBR, he got around and his work was really important. <laughs> The interesting thing, though, you kind of see a couple of different strands in sex magic. So you get the union of the male and the female coming together to create this third kind of sacred being, this idea of either the magical child or that each of the people involved will be transformed by this. Or there's just the idea that you can use the energy raising of fucking in order to manifest something. To to manifest stuff. So you, you use that to charge your spells. And PBR wrote about that, too. And I forget, is it Pascal or Pascal? I always get confused as to the pronunciation. I'm not sure. I'm sure that someone will tell us, though. Okay. I'm going to be honest. I always just shorten it to PBR. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, regardless, my question was, was he a, a student of alchemy and all these things, too? Do we know about that? Do we know where he was getting his ideas? I don't know for sure. And again, I'm sure that somebody can give us the history of that. It's very clear from reading some of his writings that he did know about that and had that background. Mm -hmm. He was clearly familiar with works that were feeding into theosophy. Mm -hmm. So getting back to this idea of like this other third thing being created, and I know Sometimes Ithel is painting or drawing poly partners, but in the instances where she is creating a duad, if you will, there is this implication that they are forming the androgyne, what's sometimes called the divine hermaphrodite. And this is one of my favorite alchemical images, so much so I don't have any tattoos, but there was a time in my life I was seriously considering getting the rebus tattooed on me, which is, you know, the king and the queen becoming one. And it's this amazing kind of like hermaphroditic figure that I often equate to like the yin yang, the star of David, you know, like just any kind of esoteric symbol of like holism, if you will. And this is probably an obvious point to make, but one you make so beautifully, I'm actually going to quote you to you. (laughs) You write, The excavation of the once ubiquitous yet now nearly forgotten sacrality of the androgyne in esoteric and occult culture speaks to new generations yearning to escape labels and containers that confine us all. And certainly in this age of finally more widely acknowledging and honoring the transgender experience, the non-binary experience, and, you know, all of those different identities, I think it's just a really beautiful symbol to be getting attention and resurrection. And Eithel was certainly working with that image in her work. 
I absolutely agree. And I think there's an opportunity in rethinking some of this work for our era, maybe not how she was conceiving of it at the time, but I think there's a way to work with this in a way that challenges our conceptions of gender essentialism, where so Mm -hmm. much of contemporary sex magic has been based on this idea of essentialisms, which I think personally are so corrosive. Mm -hmm. I really hope that we liberate ourselves from those. And I think that looking at that figure now with these new cultural lenses and sets of experiences, I'm interested to see where this could possibly go. Beautifully said. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Woodland Magic. Hand poured in small batches by an escaped academic turned candle maker, Woodland magic candles are deeply inspired by nature, folklore, mythology, and literature. And I'm here to tell you, they look and smell so divine. Immerse yourself in a dark forest with candles like The Woods, Forest Floor, and Black Phillip. You know I love that one. Or conjure the magic of ancient goddesses with Persephone's pomegranates, Athena's familiar, and the Kaliach. If you're a bookish witch, you'll love their literature-inspired volumes of forgotten lore, Carmilla, and the Priory. And all woodland magic candles are made with 100% soy wax and non-toxic fragrances, and they're available at awoodlandmagic.com. That's awoodlandmagic.com. And best of all, orders of $60 or more come with free shipping and Witchwave listeners receive 10% off their orders with code WITCHWAVE10. So head on over to awoodlandmagic.com, use code WITCHWAVE10 for 10% off and get free shipping for orders of $60 or more. This season of The Witch Wave is brought to you in part by Sphere and Sundry, an astro-magical atelier where you can get expertly elected materia magica, oils, incense, bath salts, salves, inks, beauty oils, and more, which have been ritually crafted during rare, powerful, and benefic astrological configurations. And oh my word, I can tell you firsthand, this is the stuff. These formulas are chosen in accord with the strict requirements of the talismanic tradition outlined in the Picatrix and other ancient grimoires, meaning you can benefit from the power of amazing astrological transits even when the stars haven't aligned. These are incredible tools for witches who are looking to embrace the manifestations and results of their spellwork, especially the Luna in Cancer series. And I myself have the Luna in Cancer incense, and it is a dream to use for any kind of lunar magic. Venus Materia can be used for love, glamour, and attraction. 
Regulus for fame and recognition, Asclepius for healing and transformation, and Deneb Algedi for protection. I also used several of Sphere and Sundry's magical products on site in Greece during our group rituals, and they were so potent and so exquisite. I can't say enough good things about them. Since 2018, Sphere and Sundry have been a key driver in the rising tide of popularity and interest in astrological magic, amassing over 5,000 five-star reviews and field reports on their website. Most orders ship within one business day, and Sphere and Sundry is also well known for their incredible customer service as they are their magical results, and I can attest to that as well. Learn more and get $10 off your first order at spheerandsundry.com using the code WITCHWAVE. That's spheerandsundry.com, S-P-H-E-R-E-A-N-D-S-U-N-D-R-Y.com and use code WITCHWAVE for $10 off your first order. Would you like even more WITCHWAVE? Do you wish that you could hear from me and my other magical guests on a weekly basis? And what about doing monthly rituals with yours truly? Then come join me over on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witchwave Plus episodes, ad-free Witchwave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. I also lead a monthly online magical workshop, which you can attend live or watch the recording of at your convenience. Rewards for some tiers also include magical merch and contests where you can win witchly prizes each month, as well as early heads up about my other workshops before they sell out. And you can even sign up for the opportunity to work with me one-on-one. And all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven where you can connect to a community of other wonderful Witchwave witches around the world. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave now and sign up. It's a magnificent way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Amy Hale. So, Amy, as I was just saying to you during the break, I could just talk to you about the sexy stuff all the live long day. Before we move on from that, I wanted to talk about her use of color because I think of Eiffel Calhoun's work as so prismatic and at times even lurid in a way that I find incredibly beautiful and evocative and at times really weird and unsettling. And she certainly uses color with great intentionality in this body of sex magic work. So can you talk a little bit about how she viewed color as a magical tool? Yeah, I loved her jewel tones. And certainly in this collection, 
If you like your pinks and your blues and your purples, well, then this will be the body of work for you. Yes. And she loves rainbows. And listeners know I've been on like a rainbow kick. I have a relatively recent devotion to the goddess Iris, the goddess of rainbows that I've been writing about and working with in my own practice. And so anytime an artist works with rainbow in a very thoughtful, beautiful way, I get so activated by it. Oh, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. It's always great to see. Always love it. So Calhoun very clearly saw color, like many members of the Golden Dawn, saw color as entity and portal. Mm. So colors have their own intelligences. Can I just stop you and say, when you said color as portal, I just got chills all down my body. What a beautiful notion. Okay, sorry. Go, go, go. Well, the thing that's great about color is that you can't stop it, right? So in the history of how people have used color magically, obviously there's color as symbols. So this color represents X, right? Mm -hmm. You know, red represents Mars. But because color acts on your body, on your neurology, color has an impact that overrides probably what anybody's symbolic system is going to do. And it's very clear that Colquhoun, from not only her magical study, but also her artistic study, she was very interested in the physical and psychological impact of color. Mm. And she really brought that level of theory that was also being used by the Golden Dawn. Mm-hmm. She brought that level of theory into her own artistic practice. So for her, color it was a portal, it was an intelligence, it was something that was going to impact you. So when she used color, and this is also what helped me to be able to decode her work, because she was very invested in the Golden Dawn system, she was very invested in the Golden Dawn Kabbalistic color interpretations. And so when she was using those particular color sets, when there was a key to them, and sometimes she actually did provide a color key, it would be easy to decode what she was trying to do with these. So sometimes she would use them symbolically, but they were more than that. As I was saying earlier, they were invocatory. They tended to use opposing colors in a way that would create a vibratory experience in the viewer. And she used these complementary colors frequently in some of her own magical work. You don't see that as much in this set, Mm -hmm. but that is the principle that was underlying her work is that these colors would do things to you. And so again, it's that added layer of meaning and experience of her work that is just so delicious. Ah, scrumptious. And in this set, it's interesting because as you write about and as she writes in her own words, the colors scarlet and cerulean seem to be the primary polar energies or polar colors that she's working with. And it reminded me of Hilma off Clint. She worked with a system of yellow and blue, and I'm pretty sure yellow was masculine and blue was feminine. I might be getting that mixed up. But Ithel here, she's working with like this scarlet kind of magenta reddish kind of purpley for feminine energy and the cerulean for masculine energy. Yes. She's working with a lot of the same themes 
as F. Clint in some of these pieces. If you see some of F. Clint's sperm egg thing going on, and it's clear that she's also working with ideas of generative power in her work. But her color scheme is drawn from Steiner's Anthroposophy. Mm-hmm. You get the color of life being green and the blue and the yellow, which create green as being the male and female component parts. Whereas Calhoun is using this kind of blue and this magenta, their Kabbalistic interpretations of Hakma and Bina in the king scale. It gets kind of complicated, but these are the two colors that represent the divine male and the divine female, the king and the queen, which when they merge, they transcend to Kether, which is the white divine brilliance of, again, that undifferentiated godhead. That's what she's going for. Ugh. Similar principles, but two different color schemes. Yeah, and different generations. I mean, Hilma was way before her, and I doubt they would have, well, certainly Hilma wouldn't have known about Eiffel unless it was on the ethereal plane somewhere, some future-seeking plane. And that always excites me because, Amy, I feel like we're in this golden age of resurrecting what I see as a magical lineage of makers, and I will say of specifically feminine makers, who even though they might not have been aware of one another's work or even existing at the same time, are clearly going to like these corpuses of knowledge via alchemy, via Kabbalah, sometimes via tarot, Sometimes it's intuitive, other times it's deeply researched. And yet it like makes my heart race when I think about Hilma leading to Eithel and Leonora Carrington and Remedios Varro and Pamela Coleman Smith. And I mean, we could go on and on, all our faves, all our faves. And it takes a lot of, I would say, a combination of like stewardship and necromancy to resurrect the work of these geniuses, which, whether unfortunately or not, is happening posthumously in most cases. And, you know, listeners are probably sick of hearing me talk about Leonora Carrington and Remedios Varro, who, you know, I worship at the altar of, but we wouldn't be worshiping at their altar now if it wasn't for the scholarship, the stewardship, the necromancy of people like our mutual friend Susan Aberth or Ted A. Ark. And I see you as that spiritual steward. I'm sure there are others, but you were really one of her primary keepers of her flame. And you're doing that for Ethel Colhoun. And so I need to know, how did you know that she was calling you? Like, what brought you to this work? Well, I have been working with her. It'll be 24 years this year. Ugh. I know, right? And when I started working with her archives, it was a tip-off from a friend, remarkable scholar, human being, Dr. Melissa Hardy, who's a fellow American in Cornwall, who I absolutely loved. And she told me, she said, hey, have you heard of Ethel Colhoun? This is back when I was living in Cornwall. And she said, yeah, she was into witchcraft and Celtic stuff. And she was a surrealist. And you really should find out about her. So at this point, the Tate had her correspondence and a lot of her archives, but it hadn't even been cataloged. And when I opened, I went up on a, an exploratory visit to London to have a look at them. And it was the minute that I opened the first box. Because I saw not only magical diagrams, but correspondence with Doreen Valiente. Oh, stop it. I know, right? This is like immediately. And I was seeing these Kabbalistic things. And I was like, okay, this is huge. It was probably about seven years after that, 
that I saw the visual archives that at the time were being held in the National Trust. They had 5,000 pieces. And I open this folder because they just brought them to me. And one of the first things I see are these delicate, explicit, erotic pieces painted on the cellophane. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, that's taken everything to a next level. Yeah. So from the first moment, I knew that this was somebody who was a major thinker and theorist and who was a woman and who was doing something remarkable. And I think it's important to notice that I came at this from an ethnographic background. I'm not an art historian, although I seem to be having a quick career shift. (laughs) But coming at it from an ethnographic perspective and contextually, and as somebody who's been practicing occultist for 35 years now, I knew that we were going to go on a journey together. And I feel like this is something that I haven't actually written about, but I've talked to people like our mutual friend, Susan. There is something about working with an entity like that. And I would say that anybody who does this kind of biographical work is working with an entity, whether that's your belief system or not, you have to inhabit that space of conversation. Yes, yes. You have to. And I really feel in a sense that she has chosen her time and her time is now because the things that she was doing in her life, she was radical. She was uncompromising, which didn't always help her out with what she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But now we can start to fully appreciate what it was she was going for. And Amy, not to belabor the point, but she also chose you. And you are someone who, because of your magical background, because of your scholarship, because of your own values and principles, and I'll just say broadly, like, radical, open-hearted point of view, and I know you personally, and I happen to know that about you as a human being, it's like you are a perfect combination to not only be able to recognize her genius, but translate it to this new generation for this new generation. And that is magic to me. That feels like a calling. I'm not kidding when I say it's necromancy. You are in communion with a dead person. I mean, I believe that after our bodies go, that other parts of us live on. And I think you believe that too. And I think that's what's happening here. And it's really sacred work that you're doing. And it's just such exhilarating, exciting beautifying, magical work. It just really makes my heart race in all the best ways. This has been just such an incredible journey. And right now I feel like I'm strapped to the front of this speeding train. Eithel and I are just going, going, going. Yes. Somebody said to me something recently, which I hadn't considered, which was just, it gave me chills. I was so honored that somebody would say this to me. They said, she is so much a part of your life But you were also a part of her life, even while she was alive. And I was like, whoa, whoa. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just going to take that compliment because that's intense. Yeah. That's intense. And I just know that there are others, obviously, Richard Shilato, who laid the groundwork, I believe, for everything that I and others who are working with Colquhoun's work. But he has his own interesting relationship with her too. Yeah. I come at it as a woman, as an occultist, as a queer femme bi woman. Yes, there are some things that I see and I'm like, yeah, that's not just a tree stump. That's something else. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. That's a horny tree stump is what that is. (laughs) 
<laughs> Absolutely. So sometimes there are things that I feel like I can see and talk about in a way that hopefully helpful for other people in wanting to look at and decode her work and understand it and to embrace it. 100%. And getting back to that speeding train, I just want to tell listeners, and they're probably getting hip to this if they've made it this long in the conversation, which is, I think what has happened to Leonora and Remedios and Hilma is like just starting to happen for Ithel. I mean, I saw the Judy Chicago show recently at the New Museum and she had that amazing floor, which is just packed with unbelievable masterpieces by women and non-binary folk throughout time. And there was an Ithel Calhoun piece as part of that floor. Certainly all the books that you've been putting out about her. But it feels like the Tate is finally like, oh, wait a second, we're sitting on this treasure trove of amazing work that they probably didn't even understand what it was or appreciate what it was until someone like you and your colleagues come along and say, whoa, this is gold, especially because I think we're starting to see this shift in scholarship where people are studying esotericism and magic with more rigor and seriousness and respect. And so they can now recognize what the fuck it was that Ithel was even doing and trying to represent. But like I said, it takes you this perfect combination of all of these things to be able to say, not only can I tell you how amazing this is, but it can also help interpret it for you and share her flame with the world. So it's just awe-inspiring, Amy. I'm in absolute awe of what you're doing. And I'm so grateful because I didn't know about her until your work came on the scene and your colleagues' work came on the scene. So just endless gratitude for you. I am always grateful to be able to talk to you. And we met many years ago now. Yes. And you had me speak in New York one of the very first times that I had actually spoken about. I thought, gosh, I don't even remember when, 2010 maybe. Yeah. Even before that, I came out and did something for you in Brooklyn. Oh, at Observatory. At Observatory. Of course. Of course. We go way back. You can't shake me, Amy Hale. No, you cannot. I do not ever want to. I promise you. The feelings are so mutual. No. Well, listen, you and I, we have much more to talk about off mic, but also hopefully on mic. I'd love for you to come back and maybe we can do some bonus content together to talk more deeply about some of Eiffel's writings and other aspects of her life. Before we end, I know there's a lot of exciting stuff happening can you let us know, like, are there other Eithel books, other shows? What can we look forward to in the world of Eithel? And then more specifically, what else are you up to and how can people connect to you? Well, so obviously Sex Magic Diagrams of Love Eithel Colhoun is coming out with Tate Publishing early February. Very excited about that. Hopefully there will be some fun events in the U.S. to complement the ones that we're doing in the U.K., in London and Cornwall. Later on this year, I'm also doing an edited collection of Ethel Colquhoun's Magical Essays, yes. which will be coming out with Strange Attractor. Oh, yes. Super excited about that. Can't say too much, but there's going to be a lot of exciting Ethel Colquhoun action coming out of mm, the Tate in 2025. Mm -hmm. So keep that on your radar because, again, this is just starting. 
It's going to be really, really, really exciting. And the thing that many of us have been dreaming about for decades. So more on that soon. You can find me. I'm pretty much everywhere. I'm Amy Hale 93 on Instagram and on Medium, which I haven't been using as much. My website is amyhale.me. And you can also find me. I am the host and curator for the last Tuesday Society online lecture series. Mm-hmm. So you might want to go and check out the goodies that we've got over there as well. But yeah, find me on my website and on Instagram. It's where I'm mostly professionally active in the art sphere. Fabulous. Well, Amy, I can't wait to find you in the material world in person soon. I miss you. I love spending time with you and your brain. And again, just endless, infinite gratitude for you and all the magic and beauty and eroticism that you are bringing into the world. It is just such a pleasure to witness. Oh, Pam, thank you so much. It is just an honor to be speaking with you today. It's just great to be with you again. Thank you so much. And thanks to everybody listening today. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Dr. Amy Hale for sharing Ethel Calhoun's erotic art magic with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Please do drop us an email or a voice memo at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and or Walter Nordquist and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Our new Witchwave logo was designed by Thunderwing. And special thanks, as always, go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witchwave merch over at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and do consider giving us lots and lots of sparkly stars and glowing reviews. It really, truly does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at WitchWavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. My book, Waking the Witch, is available everywhere now, and the witchcraft book I edited and co-authored for Tashin is as well, so thank you for checking those out too. And if you want more WitchWave or you would just like to support the show, please do join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. <laughs>